I have a checkered family history. Several years ago, I was doing some research on my great-grandfather Moses, not the Moses in the Bible, my great-grandfather, and I went to the Grandfield, Oklahoma City Cemetery, and I said, I think my grandfather's buried here. Could you show me where to find him? And they had a, a, an attendant there. He opened a, a card, a box of, that held three by five cards, and he was looking for the gravesite. And he said, yeah, here's your grandfather. He told me where to find it in this little cemetery that was out on the plains, no trees anywhere in sight. He said, oh, by the way, um, your grandfather, who was buried in 1933, never paid the bill for the grave. <laughs> and I said, how much is it? And he says, ten dollars. I said, do I owe you interest? He said, no, we'd be happy to clear this. This is our longest standing unpaid for grave. I said, can you give me change for a 20? So paid for great-grandfather Moses' grave. And whenever I've, I've mentioned that, I have people who say, aren't you embarrassed to talk about your family's waywardness? And I said, actually, no, I'm not. And the reason why is because Paul talks about our family in 1 Corinthians 10, and he says, our fathers in the wilderness, he's saying that to Gentiles, talking about the people we're going to look at tonight. The people we're going to look at tonight, no matter how embarrassing and humiliating your family is, and by the way, mine is worse, no matter how they are, this is the worst. This is, but this is our family. Paul calls them our fathers. Now, I hope you have your Bible open in Numbers 13 and 14. You will certainly need it. And we are studying the life and career of Joshua. Joshua was born a slave in Egypt. His first few decades are spent in hard labor. And Joshua's whole nation, the people of God, are in Egyptian slavery. And we're told in Exodus 2, finally, under the, the boot of Pharaoh, they cry out for deliverance. God hears them, remembers his covenant with their forefathers. And God calls Moses out of exile in the desert to come and be Israel's deliverer. God then sends ten successive plagues on Egypt, each more severe than the previous one. The Passover is instituted and the exodus occurs. Israel leaves Egypt triumphantly and they cross through the Red Sea on dry land while the pursuing armies of Egypt are crushed and drowned. No sooner are they in the wilderness free, a little thirst comes, they can't find water, and so they cry out, complaining against God in Exodus 15. The Lord provides water from a rock. And then they cry out in hunger in Exodus 16. The Lord provides daily manna from heaven. Israel then has to have her first real battle against Amalek, the sons of Esau. And that's when we first met Joshua. He burst onto the scene and leads Israel to victory. Then Israel receives the law from God in Exodus 20. And of course, they immediately rebel against that law with the, the, with the golden calf. The Lord purges the evil from the nation. And then God raises up 70 men to assist Moses in the governance of the nation. Moses' brother and sister rebel against Moses. And our study of Joshua's life has brought us to some of Israel's darkest days. Some would say it's actually the worst. And in the cluster of events we're going to look at tonight and in forthcoming weeks, we will see Joshua along with one other man, Caleb stand out as an incredibly heroic figure. He'll be rejected by the unbelieving nation. He'll be honored by the God who rewards faith and obedience in his people. 
And this history is comprehensively recorded for us in Numbers 13 and 14. And let me keep reminding you, this is our family history. And also in the last part of Deuteronomy. And it's a history we need to carefully examine if we're going to understand what shaped Joshua's life and career. Now Israel has come just geographically where we stand. Israel has made their way up to Kadesh Barnea on the southern edge of Canaan, the promised land. It's time. It's time for them to claim their promised inheritance, the conquest of Canaan. So we prepare to understand this word. Let's seek the Lord's help. Our God, we tremble with gratitude that you, the great and sovereign creator and sustainer of all things, would favor us so by revealing your word to us. How we praise you for giving us your profitable word by which we can be rebuked, corrected, and instructed in righteousness. And as you have promised, by the aid of your Holy Spirit, guide your people into all truth, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to show you the request of Israel. Remember, Israel is sitting right there at the gateway to the promised land, the entry to Canaan. And in Deuteronomy chapter 1, by this time years have gone past and Moses is reviewing past history. And Moses says, years after our episode here, he said, You came to the mountains of the Amorite, which the Lord our God was giving us. And you, I said to you, look, the Lord your God has set the land before you go up and possess it. As the Lord God of your fathers have spoken to you, don't fear, be discouraged. But every one of you came near to me and said, let us send men before us and let them search out the land for us and bring back word to us of the way by which we should go up and the cities to which we shall come. And Moses said, the plan pleased me well, so I took 12 of your men, one man from each tribe. Now, what we are to see in Deuteronomy, the later telling of this, Moses tells them to go up and possess it. And as soon as Moses tells the people of God to do that, they ask their immediate response instead of saying, okay, let's line up for battle. Let's line up for conquest. We're told in Deuteronomy chapter 1 that the people ask, this is a stall tactic. And by the way, Israel becomes incredibly talented at stalling and and waiting on not in a holy way. And so the people say to Moses, let's, let's send spies. Let's not just run in all hasty. Let's send spies first. So look at what we see in Numbers 13 in our text. Numbers 13, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the children of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man, everyone a leader among them. And the way we put these texts together, Numbers 13 and Deuteronomy 1, is the sequence happens this way. The demand for spies begin with the people. It was seconded by Moses when he says in Deuteronomy 1, the plan pleased me well. And then finally it was ordered by God in Numbers 13, 1 and 2. And it seems as though the request for spies was rooted in the unbelieving fear of the people. Listen to what Matthew Henry, that great Presbyterian minister, says. They would not take God's word that it was a good land and that he would without fail put them in possession of it. They would not trust the pillar of cloud and the fire to show them the way to it. They trusted their fears more than they trusted God. How absurd for them to send up spies to spy out a land which God had already spied out for them. Matthew Henry concludes, So we ruin ourselves by giving more credit 
to the testimony of men than to God's word, we ruin ourselves when we walk by sight and not by faith. And so what we see is this request, this demand of Moses for spies to go out beforehand was not rooted in faith, it was rooted in unbelief. So look at the choosing of leaders. Look at verses 1 through 16 of Numbers 13. We're told in verse 2 that these men who were chosen were leaders of the tribes. They had great credibility and authority with the nation of Israel. Think of this. Each one of these men who are listed here are the leader, the acknowledged head, and the best of that tribe, that tribe containing anywhere who are with Moses, anywhere from 60,000 to 150,000 per tribe. This is the best they've got. And this choice of leaders will come back to haunt this nation all through Israel's history. The choice of these men. So if you ever think, well, one election, one choice of leaders, what can it hurt if we choose somebody who's maybe a little less than? Let me say it now and repeat this admonition a few hundred times. You have opportunities to choose leaders, to choose elders and deacons soon. Choose leaders who are known to believe the word of God and who will act in faith. Don't choose faithless men. Don't choose stalling, delaying, disobedient men. Now, thankfully, there are two shining exceptions. For example, look at verse 6. You see Caleb, the leader of the tribe of Judah, and his name literally means in Hebrew, all heart, and that describes Caleb all the days of his life. Secondly, you have in verse 16, Joshua, the leader of the tribe of Ephraim, has his name changed from Hoshea to Joshua. Name changes, of course, in scripture are always significant, whether it's Abram to Abraham, Simon to Peter, Saul to Paul, a name is changed when that man is about to have a significant ministry. Of course, Joshua means Jehovah saves and is the Old Testament Hebrew form of Jesus. And so the mission is defined for these leaders. Look at verses 17 through 20. We read there the the mission. Moses briefs the spies. And he says to them in verse 17, Go up this way into the south, go up to the mountains, see what the land is like, whether people who dwell in it are strong or weak, few or many. Whether the land they dwell in is good or bad. Now stop and stare at those words in verse 19. Moses tells them to see if the land is a good land. Whether the the cities they inhabit are like camps or strongholds. Whether the land, again, is rich or poor. Whether there are forests there or not. Be of good courage. Bring some of the fruit of the land. The time was the season of the first ripe grapes. Does it strike you as strange that Moses tells the spies to go check and see if Canaan is a good land? Because God had already repeatedly told them what kind of land it was. For example, way back in Exodus chapter 3, the Lord says, I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And then again, later in Exodus 3, the Lord says, I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. Again, in Exodus 13, The Lord says, when you come into the land, you'll notice it's a land flowing with milk and honey. And so when you read Moses' briefing, look at it there in verse 17 to 20. So what if it's lean? 
What if the cities are fortified? What if the people are strong? Is that going to make a difference? God has already promised to hand it to them. So then we have the reconnaissance of Canaan. Look at verses 21 through 24. And if you have maps in your Bible, you will notice that from Kadesh, where they sit, to Hamath, in verse 21, is well over 200 miles as the crow flies. And so when we map out the chart, you can, some of you have a map that actually maps this out in the back of your Bible. What we see is, is these 12 spies have a a road trip all the, the whole time, hiding from the inhabitants of the line. Of the, of the land, they have a road trip of about 500 miles up and down and across Canaan. And they're gone, we're told in verse 25, 40 days. So these men are to, to go north and south, crisscross east and west. They were to be gone as long as Moses was on Mount Sinai, meaning they were covering about 13 miles a day, these 12 men were. Now then it's astounding We read that all the spies return safely, even though they've been in hostile territory. Nobody has a scratch. Isn't that a remarkable display of God's providential care and what he intends for his people? Shouldn't that convince the spies and then the nation of Israel that God intends to be gracious to them? Now what's telling is all the 40 days these spies are gone, we don't hear a word from the Israelites. Why? We know these people. This is family, remember? Their unbelief before, their unbelief had led to sinful impatience at Mount Sinai while Moses and Joshua were on the mountain. Their unbelief had led to their request for the spies. But now unbelief is at the root of their delay and procrastination at Kadesh Barnea. They wouldn't have stayed there 40 days. They would have stayed there 40 years, 40 years times 40 years. They were glad to do anything except what God commanded. The spies returned. Look at verse 25 through 27. And they admit that the land of Canaan is good and rich. They have to admit that. We read that At the end of verse 26, they show them the fruit of the land, these huge clusters of grapes from the valley of Eshcol. And they have to admit in verse 27, we went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Now notice this. What they have to say is because it's, it's, you, you can't escape from it. Here's the, the poles with the huge clusters of grapes hanging from it. When they say in verse 26, you know, we we found things exactly as God told us. It was a land flowing with milk and honey. It is a good land. And then you want to jump up and down and say, well, then why don't you believe everything else God says? Namely, that he's going to give you this land. But look at their counsel in verse 31. They're standing there, hands full of fruit and produce. And even with that, remember, no casualties, not a scratch on anybody. Hands full of produce. And what do they say? Here's their assessment in verse 31. We are not able to go up against these people, for they are stronger than we are. That's the majority report from 10 twelfths of the spies. Don't go up and take the land. In other words, here's what they're counseling. Unbelief and disobedience. And we know exactly who these 10 faithless men are. Pastor Anderson pointed this out. Look at verses 3 through 16 in chapter 13. 
we have the names, the tribe, the family connections listed for us there. And it's fascinating to me how often the Lord lists the names of wicked men in Israel's history in Old and New Testament. And so not only do we have these, we know who the ten faithless men are, they're their names. But then in Joshua 7, we'll come to Achan. We know him well by name. And when we come to the New Testament, nothing changes. When Paul writes the pastoral letters to First and Second Timothy, he names the men who should be marked out as wolves and excommunicated. He says, Phagellus, Hermogenes, Demas, Alexander, and Hymenaeus. You see, the Lord remembers faithless men who bring harm to his church. He remembers them for judgment. And that's what we see happening here in verses 3 through 16. You have listed, and it will be listed for all eternity, these ten faithless men. Well, listen to their reasoning. Look at verse 28 and 29 and 32 and 33. Here's their reasoning. When they say, don't go up, why not? Well, they say in verse 28, their cities are walled and fortified. Deuteronomy chapter 1 the, the later history says they're fortified to heaven. And in verse 32 and 33, they say, the people are huge. They're men of great stature. They're giants. And in verse 28, they say the residents are, are strong. This is where their scouting and research has led them. But their report is full of cowardice. Now, let's take away God's promise and power for just a minute. Let's take that away, even though that's what really matters. Let's just use worldly wisdom. Israel has 600,000 fighting men and more. They have a capable, proven general in Joshua. The only battle they've ever fought against Amalek, they won. Surely one of these spies said, hey, we're 1-0, we're undefeated, let's go up against them. And they have this going for them. The Canaanites are dispersed through the land. Any general knows this happens on about the first morning of lectures at the war college that you divide and conquer people who are dispersed like this. That's how courageous men would have reasoned. The bigger the giants, the bigger the target for our marksmen. And they would have reasoned this way again. Just leave out God's promise and power. The land is fertile and can support a large army. We don't even have to worry about supplies. But the men had more than human wisdom to rely on. Listen to what else they had to rely on. They had visible manifestations of God's presence with them. The pillar of cloud by day, they could see it right there. A symbol that God was with them. And when night fell, the pillar of fire was right there. They had daily manna provision every day. They had constant manifestations of God's presence with them. And they had already seen and personally experienced God's deliverance from the mightiest army on earth, the Egyptians. All their experience, their victories over Amalek and Egypt, all the manifestations of God's presence pointed to them going up and taking the land now. On top of that, Israel had all the rich covenant promises of God. And they had already seen it was true. Their spies said so. They'd seen it was a good land. Why not trust him for the rest now? And they had those promises. The promises that go back to Genesis 15 when God says to their father Abraham, to your descendants I've given the land. The promise in Genesis 17, I will give to your descendants after you all the land of Canaan. 
they knew these promises. They were as familiar with them as you are familiar with John 3.16. But their eyes were glued to their weakness and their enemies. So I want you to see a, a sight. It's really sort of a, an amazing sight. Look at Numbers 14. The nation responds wickedly in Numbers 14. What we see there is all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. So you have somewhere upwards of 2 million people plus fussing, crying, wailing, quite a scene all the night. Now get the picture about volume. Have you ever been to Death Valley at Clemson? Send in our Sooner fans, but every so often we slum and step down and go to Death Valley at Clemson. And it holds about 80,000 people there. Think of this. 25 Death Valleys lined up side by side in an area about two square miles, all weeping loudly. While the fuss, while the commotion, this is all over an imagined evil that's not happened. It's over something they think might happen if they were to obey God and go up and take the land. Have they suffered a crushing defeat in battle? No. Were the giants of the land surrounding their camp and placing them under siege? Nope. Did all the spies limp back into the camp wounded, carrying tumbleweeds and spindly grapes, saying the land was barren? No. Well, what did happen? Were the casualties? There are none. Here are millions of people losing a good night's sleep, traumatically upset for no discernible reason. They're agitating themselves into a frenzy so that they are almost ready, as we'll see as we develop Numbers 14 over the next few weeks, they're ready to stone their leaders. Why? Because they received an evil, unbelieving report. But the evil report itself is contradicted by the evidence that God had promised he'd give them the land. The evil report contradicts the commands of God for them to go up. The evil report goes counter to the encouragements of Caleb. Look at verse 30 of chapter 13. When Caleb, we're told, quieted the people and said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. And this evil report goes counter to their experience of the last 24 to 30 months where God has hand-carried them through all sorts of dilemmas and danger. But I'm going to tell you a profound spiritual truth that Numbers 13 and 14 contains. It is infinitely easier to stir up unbelief than it is to stimulate faith. The cause of all of this brouhaha in the camp is not... Fact, reality, evidence, or truth. It's unbelieving fear and speculation, evil imagination, and paranoia. Now notice this about unbelief. Unbelief is never rational. It's always unreasonable. It's never built on fact. It imagines the worst. It distorts reality. The world says, you Christians are taking a leap off a cliff into the dark, with no sign anyone is there to catch you. No. The rational man is the one who believes the word of God and takes the commands and promises at face value. But as well, when we speak of unbelief, not only can we say it's never rational, unbelief is always its own worst punishment. Those who refuse to trust God's word 
are constantly vexing themselves. They lose sleep. They get ulcers and diarrhea. They fret and worry and pace at 3 in the morning. They engage in spiritual self-flagellation. They have thousands of what-ifs with which they torment themselves, all because they will not trust God and take him at his word, and by that word, calm down. How do we apply this word to us tonight? And again, we are just beginning this section, which is so important for our family history. The first application you should know is the danger of delay whenever you're faced with the clear promises of God. Delayed obedience is always disobedience. Parents, you know this with your children, right? You know when you tell your children to do something, if it's as simple as clean their room, and they say, I'll do it in a minute. Let's just start disobedience. Or if you come back 30 minutes and check on them 30 minutes later, and they say, well, I'm, I'm getting to that. Delayed obedience is disobedience. And that's what Israel is doing now. They're stalling. They're dragging their feet. They're procrastinating. And their delay cost that whole generation their inheritance. Hebrews chapter 3 teaches us how to understand the Kadesh Barnea incident today. And it says, don't harden your hearts like they did. If you'll hear his voice today, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion. I can't stress enough the necessity of believing God and acting on his promises today. A second application is the stubbornness of unbelief. Do you see how stubborn unbelief is? Think of all of the things these people had seen God do. They'd seen the ten plagues. They'd cheered. They'd seen the Red Sea part before their very eyes. They'd seen God thunder and shake the top of Mount Sinai when he gave the law. Yet now they refuse to believe God. I'm deeply convinced that most Christians are incredibly naive when it comes to assessing just how stubborn lost men are in their unbelief by nature. Think of the Pharisees who in Jesus' day, immediately after seeing Jesus feed the 5,000 and then walk on water, said in John chapter 6, so when are you going to show us a sign that we might believe? We don't reckon on how stubborn, faithless men are. That's why I always laugh whenever I see ad campaigns or really methods, just methods, period, that say, we'll use this method and people will come flocking to saving faith in Christ. Maybe it's an ad campaign. Maybe it's the Jesus film. Maybe it's invitations or emotional manipulations like the lights turned up and down at just the right time and mood music with the intent to bring men to saving faith. Friends, if the miraculous plagues in Egypt and the parting of the Red Sea, and the pillar of cloud and fire, and the daily manna, and the miraculous triumph over Amalek, and the water from the rock, if these don't persuade men to saving faith, your silly method is not going to work. Because by nature, men are hard-hearted. They are doggedly unbelieving. It takes nothing less than a sovereign, gracious, mighty work of God to change a heart. Put down all your arguments. If we would only do this program, Carl, but yeah, maybe some of those other methods, but if we just do this program, this method, then men would believe. My friend, God alone in his sovereign mercy can blast the unbelief from men's hearts. Remember, Joshua's new name means Jehovah saves. Only he can give saving faith. Another application you should see, and we're going to go deep in this in the next few weeks. Unbelief is a root sin. 
It's at the heart of ingratitude and discontentment. It's at the root of worry and fretting and rebellion. Chop down the root of unbelief and you slay the tree of worry. Don't settle for symptoms. Go for causes. Pride is a root sin. Idolatry is a root sin. And what we will see is unbelief is a root sin which plagues Israel from this day for the next 1,500 years. And it does them in at the time of Jesus. A fourth application. Unbelief is incredibly infectious. It's so infectious that it can spread from, look at verse 1 of chapter 14. It can spread from 10 men to 2 million men in less than 24 hours. The worst case of COVID you've ever heard of doesn't have that sort of virology. It can spread from 10 men to 2 million in 24 hours. Now what I want to do is I want to peek ahead. I want you to see what God does to the spreaders of unbelief. Look at chapter 14 in verse 36. And look what the Lord does with these men who spread unbelief and stir up doubt in the camp. In chapter 14, verse 36, we read, Now the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, who returned and made all the congregation complain against him by bringing a bad report of the land, those very men who brought the evil report about the land, died by the plague before the Lord. But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, remained alive of the men who went to spy out the land. Knowing that unbelief is spread so easily, and it's so distasteful to a holy God, we should be laboring to spread its opposite. Not unbelief, but faith. We should be exhorting each other when we hear even the slightest hint of unbelief or cynicism. Friend, God's word is true. You must trust him. This is why the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 3, while it's day, encourage one another. Tonight, the takeaway is God is calling you to put away doubt and unbelief and to trust him. Remember Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God to everyone who believes. Ephesians 2.8, by grace you're saved through faith. For John 5, Jesus says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who has sent me has everlasting life and will not come into judgment. My friend, our family legacy is one of unbelief. But God is calling you tonight to believe him and his promises. Let's pray. Our Father, we see ourselves as in a mirror in this text. We see these men not trusting your power and not trusting your goodness. Sovereign Lord, help our unbelief. Give us grace and draw us to rest on your promises. Our faith is weak and wavering. Our steps are faltering. Our backsliding into unbelief is frequent. Our doubt is serious and our cynicism is hateful to you. And so, Lord, we ask that tonight, in your mercy, that you would water the seed of faith you have planted in this congregation and have mercy upon your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.